3: Just before we start today's show, uh, Mid-Atlantic listeners, I'd like to implore you to go over to our new YouTube channel. Yes, you've heard it. We finally are putting our shows up on YouTube. Quite simply, go on to YouTube, search for Mid-Atlantic Podcast to subscribe to our channel. It's incredibly important that you do so for the sake of the algorithm. Some jiggery poke, which I don't quite understand, but you can watch all the episodes there and... Please, for the love of all things holy, please subscribe to the channel because it really will help me out. Now, plus, for an exclusive experience, visit Royfield.com and sign up to our newsletter. Now, this will give you access to the live podcast recordings on Zoom, where, if you are in the audience, you can engage and ask questions with our expert guests. So join us on this journey of exploration and understanding of the world of politics in the US, in the UK and globally. Subscribe and sign up today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find
2: others on iTunes.
1: All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain
4: standing for the singing of our national anthem.
1: The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America.
3: Hi, hello and welcome. I'm Royce Brown, and I am in Birmingham. It is 2024, the start of a new year. And what I thought we'd do is take a snapshot Uh, let's get our crystal balls out let's prognosticate with a good friend of mine, Piotr Kersen from the Global Gambit podcast. If you don't know of him, he's doing great things over there on the YouTubes and also his podcast is rather good too. So today what we're going to do is specifically look at the Middle East, but specifically to look at the ICJ and how important that is going to be in 2024. We're going to look at the continuing conflict between Russia and Ukraine. I'll be looking at a partitioning of Ukraine. We're going to look at China and also tensions with Taiwan and its new president. We're also going to look at the Horn of Africa. How seismic is the new treaty between Ethiopia and Somaliland? Uh, But Piotr, first, Happy New Year, sir. How's your Christmas? Christmas Day was spent skiing on an Alp, which
4: was very nice. Because when you start a YouTube channel, as I'm sure you'll be learning increasingly every Royfield and everyone, go and subscribe if you haven't already to Royfield's it, it becomes obsessive. So even when I was on Christmas Day, I was like, oh, I got, oh, I've got another subscriber, yay. But it was very good, thank you. How was yours?
3: You know what? Quite quiet. My son is now over here from Canada. So at the moment, we're living together. It's, it's all new. It's a new year, new experiences. It's all good. So what I thought we'd do first off is to deal with the Middle East being if not on the brink, potentially we have a conflict between Israel-Hamas, which is a critical concern for just about everybody. The escalating tech tensions and the military operations impact regional stability. We potentially have a situation where both Hezbollah and the Houthis could well be pushing uh, a Western response, which means that this conflict, which is being at the moment uh, restricted to Gaza, could well become a regional one. But specifically, though. Looking at 2024, one of the fascinating aspects of this war has actually been the ICJ and the fact that South Africa has brought arguments that Israel is complicit in genocide. How important do you think this is going to be in terms of the backdrop to the conflict in Gaza in the forthcoming year?
0: Israel has a genocidal intent against the Palestinians in Gaza. That is evident from the way in which Israel's military attack is being conducted, which has been described by Ms. Hassim as It is systematic in its character and form, the mass displacement of the population of Gaza, headed into areas where they continue to be killed, and the deliberate creation of conditions that, quote, lead to a slow death, unquote. There is also the clear pattern of conduct, the targeting of family homes and civilian infrastructure, laying waste to vast areas of Gaza, and the bombing, shelling, and sniping of men, women, and children where they stand, the destruction of the health infrastructure, and lack of access
4: to humanitarian assistance. The ICJ is complicated enough. International law is complicated enough. I spent, you asked me about my Christmas, I spent half my Christmas and New Year period studying uh, an extra qualification in just international humanitarian law or IHL uh, because I wanted to have a better understanding of how it can or can't be applied in certain contexts with the Gaza war because the gaza war is not just a state v state actor it's non-state with a territory that is not fully recognized versus another that is not recognized by some others and all these complexities i think it's important to keep in mind what the actual case is so this was brought against israel on december 29th accusing it of quote genocidal acts they've been palestinian people have been campaigning for months for this sort of thing And I think it is very symbolic that the South Africans have done this because they are obviously a country that has their apartheid and Israel is accused of apartheid actions by groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty. Now I want to make it very clear that I'm just describing things. I'm not saying whether or not they have. It's way beyond my remit to be able to make such calls like that. But that's the case that South Africa is pushing. This is happening in the ICJ. The ICJ is also called the World Court. It is part of the UN as the highest legal body, which is different to the International Criminal Court, which is not part of the UN. The ICJ's jurisdiction is nation states versus the ICC, which is about individuals. So the ICC was more trialing Milosevic during the Yugoslav cases. The ICJ comprises about 15 judges who are appointed for about nine-year terms and they represent member states so there are already accusations before we even get into the details that because the security council is made up of five permanent members of which three are western and more pro-israel at least traditionally speaking it's not a fair balance versus the 10 elected members which it varies and so if south africa wants to lodge a case against israel what if it did it two years ago that would have a very different composition of potential perspectives because India, Germany versus say Jamaica and Guatemala or something, but yes, yeah, so basically they held two two days of hearings, and the largely speaker didn't watch the entire thing because they're very dense and it's and it is deep. But basically, the the South Africans are demanding that Israel does not continue what it's doing; it it stops its military activities and to use what they call, they think, provisional measures. And basically trying to protect against further severe and, yeah, if I remember correctly, irre- irreparable harm to the rights of the Palestinian people under the Geneva Convention, which they said it violated to, quote, impunity. Those are South Africa's demands. They are trying to push for the Geneva Convention. There's war of crime, uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes of aggression, which is the third one often utilised. It was in the case of the Ukraine. But, and then genocide. Israel responded by blambasting the case and that it would defend itself hitherto the president called the case i think absurd or preposterous or something and it, that it oh and it constituted blood libel and their case was more i think just the case of rejection and that this is they're denying this matter they but they would proudly present their case under self-defense yeah so it, it's a case of accusation versus rejection and again i'm doing a very crude job of trying to simplify this because it's I guess what I would say is that the law case is... It's not going to end soon. The provisional ruling could take weeks. So the two outcomes. One, if the court decides to implement some interim measure, this would put a legal obligation on Israel to end its its campaign and end its operation within Gaza. The court's rulings are final, but this is the problem. It has no legal authority to enforce them. So... Mm. It's up to the. But it is a powerful moral arbiter, though, isn't it? Uh... Oh, I was going to come to that. Oh, yeah. No, I'm. I'm just talking from the legal perspective. If You want to go into the politics and the morale? Oh, we can. We can certainly explore that. Just. Or oh, the other option is just out of the two provisional releases. The other option is even if the court doesn't decide to implement an interim measure, it could still. De- it could still decide that there is a that the case has jurisdiction and proceed. So that these sorts of things are not clear. A final ruling would potentially takes several years and that's not going to uh, solve the situation for the millions of Palestinians affected, millions of people affected in the region um, and and ultimately at least um, curtail the, the conflict in the immediate sense. Those are the legal arguments or perspectives. Moral and political, yes, the optics here are powerful and arguably more powerful. It's a bit like when Ukraine takes a case to the UN General Assembly about Russia's new strikes across the country. It knows it's not going to change the shape of the war. What it's trying to do is illustrate how isolated Russia is on the international stage. When this happened in Ukraine, or when this happened with the Ukraine war in the first, what, three, four months, they had a few referendum, sorry, votings, and 140-plus member states voted against Russia. It doesn't mean anything. Nothing changed. The world has continued now, obviously. But it was impactful because serbia is voting against russia india is abstaining china's abstaining other countries that you thought were pro-russia are voting against it gives you a sense of just how popular the country's action is i'll put it this way genocide is a very particular term it has a very strong connotation and countries whether the people in the public will, will want to utilize genocide the governments may not want to agree with such a particular wording, even if a large proportion of countries, and I use the word large proportion because it doesn't mean majority, agree with the need to hold Israel to account and stop the uh, stop the war, doesn't mean that they agree with the wording of genocide. There's a difference. Some countries might not be willing to go that far. Again, people might not like these nuances, but it matters in law. It, it matters,
3: matters in the, matter in the law. Perception. I would say that there also is another court and it's the court of public opinion. And I think it's fairly safe to say this is such a a contentious war, but I think it's fairly safe to say that world opinion has shifted from the original horror of the attacks by Hamas on southern Israel on October 7th to what many people see is that disproportionate israeli response we have 70% of the homes in gaza mm. have been destroyed 70% and over 1% of gazans have been killed that unquestionably i would just add to that
4: oh. 10% of the 10% of the gazan population has effectively been has been covered casualty of the war 2.3 million so 23,000 that's a lot it's what it's like 3 3.3 million in the united states or 600,000 people in the United Kingdom or 650,000 it's a lot of people and just the last point I just want to make is that i uh, you're right the, the the original perception of sympathy for October 7th astonishment shock and horror has now shifted to Israel uh, many countries around the world apart from pretty consistent ones in the West being like no this is absolutely outrageous Israel you are overdoing it this is unnecessary and, and disproportionate however military analysts would disagree with the term disproportionate. And I know you're going to be about semantics, but in law, disproportionality is not based on number of lives lost. It's based on military objectivity. So specifically, Israel has not proportionately reached its objectives because Hamas, which is the perpetrator of the crimes in Israel, have not been dealt with. And therefore, until Israel deals with Hamas, the proportionality theory. It's not based on casualty rates. I know that sounds completely madness to people who are just like, but they've killed 23,000 Palestinians versus 1,200 Israelis. In, it, it, the militaristic interpretation is very
3: different to... Uh, I, well, I, I, it, I think that, that... You get that distinction. And, and, yeah. and that's the reason why And you or I, and neither of us, of us are experts in, in international law. And, this, and one of the reasons why this case is going to go on so long is because people need to argue quite arcane legal points and their relevance specifically to do with this conflict. But just one thing I wanted to say before we leave the ICJ and Israel, the point that I was going to try and make was that pressure on, let's say, a party like the Labour Party is going to be considerable if you have Keir Starmer being the Prime Minister, as many people think, let's say in 2025, 2026, when the ICJ might come to a ruling, and a party like the Labour Party, which has been very foremost in wanting a, a two-state solution, and the pressure that Starmer is under from many of his backbenchers to have more of a an overlying centre in Israel, something like the ICJ coming out, and let's say, if they do say that they agree with the South African case against Israel is going to put a lot of pressure on many Western governments to at least soften their, let's say, blanket support for the state of Israel. So whilst the ICJ cannot um, implement any of its rulings, it does have this kind of moral um, authority uh, which it can uh, wield uh, in terms of, let's say, soft power over over some political parties uh, throughout the world.
4: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great point. And one of the things about the ICJ, we touched upon it, is that how do that? How would the decisions go? How do people? How do the judges vote? Now, judges are supposed to be uh, impartial, and largely speaking, I think they have towed a pretty impartial line. Uh, from my very broad analysis of uh, uh, reading into it when I was studying in in, in the Hague and Amsterdam, but they have also voted in line with countries' politics. And so this is your point. We've got a year of 60 plus elections, sorry, 60 countries going to the polls. We've just had Taiwans, we've got Americas, we've got Britons. And so if England is on, if the UK is on the ICJ, which it isn't at the moment, what difference could a shift in party politics in the UK have on the voting intentions at the ICJ? Now, it's, it doesn't work obviously that quickly and, and directly, but we could talk about if there's a sudden change in Russia, something Putin isn't in power. Imagine that. I'm kidding, obviously, but it might have, depending upon the other countries that are on the on the ICJ, if there's any leadership changes, then that might implicitly influence the, the way that they vote. So that is something to keep in mind as we move ahead with this court case.
2: Can we just drill down on Ukraine just a little bit? And I asked this question on Monday. We had a panel of uh, Western diplomats speaking of Ukraine. And I asked the question... Why is it that and I, from my admittedly western perspective, Ukraine is clear cut, one country, a big country invaded its neighbor. We would think the rest of the world would be on board with that. You can't change borders by invading another country, but when I go around, when I talk to southeast asian friends, they kind of are more like, yeah, well, Russia had security interests. What's your perspective
3: as a Singaporean, southeast asian, but also someone who knows the world about why it is that this idea that the Ukraine war is a clear case of aggression for people like me, is not so much for a lot of other people. But sometimes when you see a
4: conflict, it's important to watch the entire video. And when you watch the entire video, you say, oh, well, it's actually not so simple. And if you want to find a solution, you better watch the entire video and not just depend on one snapshot. Because I read Putin's common history of Ukraine and Russia written in July, it was to me a quite a good piece of historical writing. When I mentioned it to my American friends, they laughed at me, they sneered at me. They said, this is an evil man. How can you read him? What, what can I say? But uh, when he moved, I was sure there that Ukraine will be partitioned. And it will be partitioned for decades, the way the Korean Peninsula has been partitioned, the way Kashmir has been partitioned, the way Cyprus has been partitioned. It may be possible after 2-3 years to have a
3: ceasefire. There'd be no peace agreement. Let us move on to Ukraine. You mentioned Putin. As 2024 unfolds, there is growing speculation about whether it will bring a dampening of the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, which has significantly impacted regional stability and global politics. The Ukrainian offensive in the summer didn't achieve its objectives. And now the world's attention has really moved to the conflict in the Middle East between Israel and a mass specifically in american politics there are many republicans that do not want to continue to fund this war are we going to slowly but surely a forget this conflict in russia and ukraine and will that then lead to a de facto partitioning of ukraine specifically remembering as well that there's also a russian election this year
4: yeah, let's just deal with the Russian election right now. It's a slam-dung. Putin is out of power. We're getting in democracy. We're getting in freedom of expression and a happy go. No, he's going to win again. Um, you know, you have what's called the systemic opposition in Russia, which is made up of the three other largest parties, the communists, the Liberal Democratic Party, which are ultra-nationalists. The name is not... Ignore the name. And a fourth one, which is irrelevant because they get like a percent. None of these parties ever actually have an alternative opinion to a United Russia, which is Putin's party, particularly on foreign policy, which is what we're focusing on here. Keep in mind it's uh Russia say in quotations marks, a semi presidential republic, which means it's similar to France in its political system. So Putin is actually part of a party. But yeah, we just think of Putin as this guy who is a part above the whole thing, largely because he is. So election not gonna make any difference. If anything, maybe the turnout is really low and the Russians are a bit pissed off with the continued war fatigue that we were talking about from the Ukrainian point of view. It's not happening in Russia. But Russia's economy is more resilient than the West has given it credit for. And mainly because, despite all the sanctions, countries are still trading with Russia. Luxury clothing is up, like, absurd amounts. Eggs are more costly than Gucci bags. I was reading in an Economist article just this morning. But even that, if you speak to Russians on the ground, which I do occasionally, eggs are not even that expensive. People seem to forget in the West that Russia has dealt with difficulty time and again. And whether or not you are supportive of the Kremlin or not, just from a very objective standpoint, Russia is a resilient country. And the people in Russia are quite content to deal with hardship because that's what they've been used to. They feel in the mentality that the world is out to get them in some ways, or that they are. And it's also what Putin's war machine, propaganda machine, has made them to, led them to believe. But war fatigue is a thing, and people don't like this t- because they think it means you're not supportive of Ukraine and the ultimate belief in their freedom and sovereignty. That's different. Those two things are very different. I engage on this issue all the time, and because I talk from a place of pragmatism, people seem to think that I'm not compassionate or sympathetic to the Ukrainian situation. That is not the case. That's a conflation of details. I am looking at this situation and I'm as appalled as anyone with any real um, decency about them is of what has been the past two years. I don't think people are going to forget the Ukraine war. No, because it's just too big a deal for the world economy. It's too inset in our minds now, even if you're not Ad, 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 um, actively following it every day, you're still aware that Ukraine is a major component to everyday life now. I don't think it's going to be a forgotten war like, I don't know, somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa or other parts of the Southeast. There's a civil war going in Myanmar at the moment between tens of thousands of re- rebels and the Tatmador. We don't really hear much about that. So, I d- and that's because Myanmar, unfortunately, is not an important part of the global economy the ukrainian war is just too big and also because it involves a great power or big power so no i don't think we're going to forget about it are we fed up with it uh, i do think that people are immune or desensitized to the war now if this i've been in pubs where it's come on in the news and i've actually seen people switch channels but does that mean it's going to play in directly to government policy no we said it before about the perspective of the general public to government views of say palestine in the uk right Royfield, the public sentiment about the war in Gaza is very different to what the uh, the Prime Minister and the government are doing. They're still pretty largely in support of Israel, despite public sentiment being more on support of Gaza or Palestinian. Uh, and 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 this may be the case with with parts of the UK and other countries, right? Like the, the Defence Secretary of the UK was giving a speech just today, and and we will not relent until Ukraine is free and sovereign. But the general public, it's not a clear cut. So. I I do think the longer this war goes on, the less and less appetite there is for it to last. I don't like to call too much, but I am increasingly confident enough to say that I, I think this war will continue. But I do think we're going to see substantive changes in the type of potential support given by the West, the general public rhetoric around it. Biden has an election and no incumbent president that I can think of, has done exactly a good job of winning re-election when they've been stuck in the Middle East or, or whatever it is. Everybody constantly talks to me about how Trump when he was president never entered a war. America was never in a war when Trump was in office and as far as I can think of that's true but I don't necessarily put that down just purely to Trump. So that being said Biden's got an uphill struggle for 24 election in the US and that will increasingly become his priority. John Kerry's already dropped off as being special climate envoy to go and help with his re election campaign. So you're seeing these shifts beginning to happen. And will it happen with Ukraine? Quite possibly. And this is where, to bring this round to a wrap up, is that the Russians are infamous for strategical patience, their ability to outlast their enemy by just flinging bodies at the problem. The Russians are not efficient, but they are effective in terms of just pure manpower the more people you get at something, and that is something they have. They have 140 million people versus 40 million in Ukraine, of which 4 million fled. If the Russians could hold out long enough, they might get what they want. Now, let's go into specifics. What did the Russians originally want? They wanted the removal of Zelensky and a de facto puppet state like Belarus. That's what they ultimately wanted. When they realized that their initial 3-day, 10-day Invasion wasn't going to work. They reformulated their goals and made it about Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, Zaporizhia, and Kherson. These four oblasts predominantly make up what's known as Novorussia, which is the Russian for New Russia, which is what the Russian Empire expanded into in the late 19th century, and basically cuts off all of Ukraine. And also because its ethnic Russians are more present there. So this is what I think Putin is trying to settle on uh, as well, but. It's also neither side can conduct a, an easy counter-offensive because of fortifications. If the Russians push through, they're going to be attacked by HIMARS, artillery, all sorts. So the Ukrainians are gearing up for the F-16s. The Russians still have air superiority, but there's that question. And then if the Ukrainians push through, which they didn't do last year with the old build-up for the counteroffensive, then they've got a heck of a load of mines fortifications to deal with. Some estimations say that it would take decades, if not centuries, to demine ukraine fully the eastern ukraine and the Russians. which is which
3: is, which is the reason so, why i framed it as are we just looking at
4: basically yeah too? sorry I... I know i went on a tangent but yeah very simply i i can see this either no country is going to win outright because outrightly means the russians take all of ukraine or all of the territories that they want or ukraine wins outrightly which is pushing them out completely and obtaining crimea those are the two outright victories or you get marginal victories marginal victories is ukraine gets back a bit of territory or it just prevents the russians from taking more and it eventually has to accept that its eastern part has been lost or it's no longer able to govern it or whatever or a marginal victory for the russians which is they keep the territory that they own and maybe they accept that the ukrainians do join the eu but not nato or they remain neutral right there are so many different variations which are similar but still distinctive in one way or another based on the six demands that the russians originally outlined in early 2022 so this can either be a frozen conflict where it just goes on forever and they take pot shots long-term artillery fire the two sides are at an armistice, but they're not at a peace agreement because they've never signed it like the north koreans and south koreans are they've never signed a peace agreement they're still at war those are the scenarios or you get some political settlement and Ukraine agrees that if they can have back Crimea, the Russians can keep what they've taken, or if the Russians keep Crimea, they can the, Rus- the Ukrainians can have back Kherson because the Russians control a, a tiny section of it. Or the Russians agree that the Ukrainians can join the EU, but not NATO, and they will reinstate the Russian language in the Ukrainian constitution, right? These are all the variations, but I cannot see for the life of me a political solution. So it's either frozen conflict,
3: protracted conflict, barely moves. Sorry for the long-winded reply. <laughs> no worries, but you have led me manfully on to talking about Taiwan and China, talking about frozen conflicts. This is not the man that China wanted to see elected president of Taiwan. In an election they framed as a choice between war and peace, Taiwan voted for defiance. We are telling the international community that between democracy and authoritarianism, we will stand on the side of democracy. This is the historic third victory of Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party, who covet closer relations with the US and desire full independence from China. When Beijing had warned those heading to the ballot box to vote carefully, this is not what they wanted.
1: I'm very calm because Taiwan
2: has been a democratic place for many years.
3: Taiwan has only had full elections since the year 2000.
2: Taiwanese elections are really exciting. They're noisy. There's a lot of public campaigning on the streets and there's a lot of public participation.
3: This is what Taiwan's voters fear losing if China completes its unfinished civil war. In 2024, China faces ongoing tensions with Taiwan, a crucial issue affecting regional stability and international diplomatic relations. The country's economy has experienced a relative malaise uh, sparked by a significant collapse in its property market, uh, undermining a key growth driver and also a key growth driver for, for the world economy. Let's not talk too much about the Chinese economy, which this year's forecast to slow down to a growth of 4.6%. If only Britain had half of that, we'd we'd be cock-a-hoop. But let's look at that frozen conflict, the conflict between Taiwan, the Republic of China, and the People's Republic of China, the mainland. How significant are the recent election in Taiwan in terms of ratted up tension between the island and the mainland?
4: Yeah, just done a lot on this, given it was on Saturday the 14th. I really recommend people to check out. We had a good conversation with a China on the a big China channel, and it was really an in-depth chat about this very thing. Now, it can be interpreted a few ways. Some analysts were arguing it's not going to make much difference because Lao xing if I said his name correctly, is the VP, and he's now the head or the president. He took over from Tsai Ing-wen, his predecessor, um yeah, you know, it's the same party, it's the same bloody people. So it's not necessarily going to be a massive deviation from the current thing. For the details, so the Taiwan was... The, the election was thrown a little bit because we had the entry of a third party called the TPP, run headed by Ko Wenjie, and <clears throat> he won about 26-7% of the vote, which is pretty good, considering that they've never really been that emergent in what has been largely a two-state party uh, system. And then the KMT, which is the more pro-eventual Chinese unification, won about 33%. The DPP, which is the more pro-eventual independence of Taiwan, about 40%. So they won the DPP won 152 seats, I think, and the KMT 151 seats. So it's going to be up to the TPP to join up with one of the others so to join up the dpp on, on on certain bills or legislation obviously to push it through so that is important but the key point of all of this really is that not not once not any of them really said that they want to deviate away from the status quo so quick 101 in taiwan chinese u.s dynamics is that taiwan lives and acts like an independent country, but is not recognized as an independent country bar, I think, about 10 nations. And what I didn't know until I had my conversation earlier today was that Nauru, a Pacific Island nation, has actually shifted from recognizing Taiwan to now China. So there, Taiwan has lost another international recognition. But yeah, so basically, the DPP largely wants to keep the status quo bar gradually push towards event- eventual independence. They came to him. KMT is the opposite. And the DPP had been incumbents for the past 10 years or so and have lot with, I think, Taiwanese people. But as you said, there were some internal domestic issues for Taiwan voters. The youngsters particularly voted TPP, the third party, because they he was pushing more about housing, job, wage rates, these things that are also an issue. But China is omnipresent. So Taiwan is... It's hard to really not talk about Chinese politics because it's inevitable with Taiwan. But largely speaking, yeah, the election is important. It's not going to have a seismic impact probably as, as we think, hopefully. But does that mean China won't do something? They already did. So the Taiwanese received a few statements of congratulations. The Foreign Secretary of the UK it was quoted as saying it's a testament to Taiwanese democracy. And... Chinese basically said, we're not happy with this, guys. We urge you, quote, to stop any words or deeds that interfere in China's internal affairs. China sees Taiwan as an internal issue because they think it's just part of China already. Not much of the rest of the world does, even though we don't treat it as a nation. It's This is all what we, the US, call strategic ambiguity. Anyway, the Chinese responded with a statement, quote, they uh, they lodge their, quote, Solomon representations, with the United States over the US comments uh, as well as the Japanese, they said the same thing. That's really interesting for a couple of reasons. One, I don't really understand what solemn representation, I don't really understand what they mean. Second, it's important because the choice of wording. China is facing a lot of headwinds, as we've had on my channel a few times now, be them economic or demographic. Last year was a bad year for China, overtaken by Indian population, demographic decrease of about 900,000. Economic data They ceased from publishing. These sorts of things are not helping the Chinese cause. And they've had to soften the language that they use in their diplomatic communications with other countries. And you can even see this if you read Chinese media briefly, like Global Times. It's the national mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party. Very almost reconciliatory, constructive, hopeful for US-Chinese relations in the future. And Solemn is a bit less aggressive than, say, antagonised. I I definitely think the Chinese are are trying to weather the storm a bit. Xi is also facing internal discontent. Just because he runs the party doesn't mean he's not free of frustrations amongst people who think he's pushing the boat out by having a third term. Supposedly in Chinese politics you're supposed to have a two-term limit, and he's like Putin, completely throwing all that out the window. So China's facing a lot of uphill considerations, and you will definitely see, I think, more military posturing. So that means flyovers into taiwan a not airspace their bigger aerial area more maritime pressures so maybe more faking blockades fainting that sort of thing but does it mean that suddenly we're going to see war between taiwan and china with the introduction of the united states i don't think so the u.s is very much not wanting that they've got as we've touched upon the middle east and ukraine to think about the last thing biden can manage is a third front which would be the worst of all because it's china and maritime and yeah so i think war fatigue in ukraine is something that is going to be a problem but i don't think it's going to be something that the chinese take advantage of just because the chinese are not in the best position themselves and no one's playing down that the west's struggles blah, blah blah inevitably people are going to go oh he's just ignoring all the troubles the west has no we're not doing what baptisms. we're very clear of the west's issues but china is facing a lot of challenges and i think taiwan is Not going to be the biggest hotspot potentially of the year as it could have well been. But wait for me to be uh, incorrect about that, possibly.
3: ...from uh, the Far East and let's go to Africa. Specifically the Horn of Africa, notably Ethiopia... ...which grapples with the devastating impact of a civil war... ...disrupting the region's stability and humanitarian conditions.
4: The breakaway Somaliland region's deal to grant Ethiopia access to the Red Sea... ...is stirring up tensions among the Horn of African nations. Amid concerns of a fresh conflict in the region... Somalia passed a law to declare Somaliland's deal with Ethiopia invalid.
2: It is now making it clear that it can take any steps needed to prevent recognition for Somaliland as a separate state.
3: Somalia has warned that it is ready to go to war with Ethiopia to prevent recognition of Somaliland's statehood. Last week, Somalia's President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud warned to prepare for the defense of the homeland as rallies took place in Mogadishu.
2: I'm
4: a young man who recently graduated from
0: university. I am ready to fight against Ethiopia and to die. It's a religious order. You have to defend your land and sea. You can die for that cause. That is the correct jihad. <laughs>
3: The aggressive talk marks the latest phase of tensions in the Horn of Africa region that began on the 1st of January when Ethiopia signed a memorandum of understanding with Somaliland allowing for the construction of a coastal port. The move enraged Somalia that claimed Somaliland as part of its territory and declared the
1: deal void.
3: On January the 1st, Ethiopia and Somaliland signed a deal, a memorandum of understanding with potentially ex- exchanging the stake of in the Ethiopian airlines for access to the Gulf of Aden. Now, first off, tell us, I think there's two really significant things here, that in effect, Ethiopia has given international recognition to Somaliland. They've been quietly going about their business for about 30 years with no international recognition. And then explain to us the geopolitical importance um, of Ethiopia having access to the Red Sea.
4: Yeah, this is a really important topic and one very overlooked, not just this specific issue, but the whole horn. I'm really glad you brought it up because an important fact, not fun fact at all, is that the Ethiopian Civil War that happened between 2020 and 2022 was the bloodiest war of this millennia, of this century, more than five to possibly a million people died in that war. And we barely know about it because the world is so distracted by other things. And Ethiopia is still reeling from that. And we've got tensions with Eritrea and Ethiopia, let alone now Somalia and Ethiopia. I'm really glad you brought that up. But yeah, so basically uh, a little bit of context here. Somalia, Somaliland was a British colony until about 1960. The territory actually uh, enjoyed about five days, I think of independence uh, before they actually chose voluntarily to rejoin uh, Somalia reunite which was Somalia was a former Italian colony and it was that union that was very volatile until the early 90s which when Somalia tried to break away and that led to the decade-long I guess you'd say war really internal war which was backed by different groups and the UN's catastrophically failed AMISOM missions one and two which actually made the, the situation worse. Somaliland has its own currency, its own parliament, it has its own diplomatic relations in certain cases. But Al-Shabaab is the other entity in in this relationship because Somali, Al-Shabaab, is one of the most potent terrorist forces in the world. They're very particular to this part of the world, so you don't hear them as much as, say, ISIS, but they are very potent. And Somalia, encompassing Somaliland, has been one of the most dangerous countries in the world and often at the bottom of these development index, peace indexes, and so on. But the new deal with Ethiopia is quite fascinating, actually. So basically, it was a, as you said, it was a, a memoranda of understanding. It's an intent rather than a legally binding agreement. But it's clear that Somalia wants to grant Ethiopia access to uh, this part of the Red Sea for uh, for commercial traffic. through so a port. Um, but it's not clear which port that would be. Um, there's also a military aspect to this, which is that Somalia said it could lease, I think, a section of the coast to the Navy of Ethiopia. Um, which was confirmed by Ethiopia. And e- Somaliland will get access to Ethiopian airlines, which is quite a bit carrier uh, in, in in Africa's relative terms. But what, what, what gets sticky is the willingness of Ethiopia to recognise Somaliland as an independent state, which no other country has done for 30-plus years. And there's a growing tension between Somalia and Somaliland over this issue because... For Somalia, it's an in- Somaliland is an integral part of its country. It's not something that they would be able to accept, mainly because also Somaliland is one of the more prosperous parts of the country. parts of Somaliland, I think more there's more economic development or activity than in Somalia. And I believe there were protests relatively recently in Mogadishu against this deal. But the de facto president of Somaliland has pushed for this sort of agreement to include a section stating that it will be an independent country at some point. Point So no commitment to time. Now, this again, this puts pressure on Ethiopia. And I don't think... The reason Ethiopia is doing this, I think, is also because of the controversiality and sensitivities with Eritrea. Eritrea controls the area north of Ethiopia's border. They fought side by side against the Tigaru people, the Tigrayan TPLF during the Civil War. And but now there's tensions again. Djibouti is obviously another country here, but it's largely a small state with... Many countries using it as a military base for maritime operations. They're not as implicated, but so Ethiopia has not much access to the Gulf of Aden and then this part of the Red Sea or run up to the Red Sea. It's very interesting for them. They really want this access, and so Somalia is trying to Somali land, excuse me, is trying to leverage that. But to for Ethiopia, which is which is the third most militarily powerful state, one of the largest populated states in the, in the whole continent to suddenly go, yes, we recognize Somaliland would be insane, like going out on a whim, like that would cause repercussions across the continent Uh, and Ethiopia's not exactly being loved by all African nations uh, because of what's been happening on the ground in the past couple of years so you really do have to put this in the context of the preceding couple of years it's hard to, because I, I don't think this deal would have even really developed to this rate had it not been because of other elements that are preceding it Egypt has said that they support Somalia, just to give you a couple of foreign perspectives for a second. He said that the Somalian counterpart was stood by with Egypt and that they would guarantee its security and stability. Turkey also played a significant role because they actually have this fascinating fact. They have a space station or like space presence, whatever, launching site in Mogadishu. Why? I don't know what impact it has for Turkish foreign policy in the Horn of Africa, I'm not sure. But they do. Erdogan has got some influence there and said it stands by the commitment to Somalia's unity, sovereignty and and territorial integrity. Pretty run-of-the-mill diplomatic statements. So I don't know what's going to happen with this. I don't think the Ethiopians are going to do much. They're not going to be pushed by the Somalilanders. And I don't think the Somaliland president will overdo it because he's already got this much. And that's a pretty big win for a non-recognized state. Um, the last point i'll make is it's incredibly difficult to get recognition as an independent state mainly because you have the biggest recognition is whether other countries recognize you and that's why south sudan 13 years ago not too far down the road from this was such a big deal but ultimately the international community felt that the emergence of south sudan as a separate state to sudan was important but somaliland versus somalia not sure, because it's in such a geopolitically sensitive and, and integral part of the world. The Horn, the Gulf of Aden, Yemen, Houthis. And certainly nothing will change, at least whilst the Gaza war is happening, and the Houthis are doing what they don't. So until that subsides, it, 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 the, the, the war could erupt on the ground between Somalia and Ethiopia, possibly, but I don't want to make too many calls on that, and I really hope it doesn't happen. But yeah, I'll no end that.
3: When when I heard of this back end of last year, I, I thought it was geopolitical chess played superbly by Abbe Ahmed, one of the key strategic faults of Ethiopia is, as you said, it's what, this massive population, about 100 million, and it's hemmed in because of no access to the sea. It lost, when Eritrea gained independence, it lost access to the sea. And, and, with, and all of its trade, maritime trade, fundamentally comes through Djibouti. And as you said, Djibouti is this tiny country, which has so many international bases. The Chinese have a naval base there, the Americans, the French, you name it, the the Turks, everybody does. And this is a way of them sidestepping that by giving recognition to Somaliland and then getting a small access to the sea. So in terms of just playing the checkerboard of geopolitics, it's it's a genius move. However, the ramifications of it, as you rightly said, are particularly seismic because uh, Somaliland has tried to get recognition for 30 years And what it does then uh, do is then potentially create Somali land as being somewhat of a client state of of Ethiopia, as well as then giving it access to the sea. But what I want to do now, because we do have a small audience with us and we've only just gone through, we haven't even done half of the topics, which I really wanted to, in the hour, uh, because we do have a small audience Uh, If you have a question for Piota about the topics which we've dealt with or maybe that there is another bit of the globe which you think uh, needs uh, the light shining on it, now is is your moment. But once you gather your thoughts, quick shout out to the many people listening to the podcast. This is now going out on YouTube. So if you want to see how bald, how grey and how flabby I am, log on to Mid-Atlantic Podcast on YouTube. And you can see me and my guests in 3D. Well, not in 3D, it's only 2D. You can see it's in full colour. However, there's a slight difference to these shows when they do go up. I do actually add more video and and more context to help embellish the whole story. So it's not just a recounting on video of the podcast. So please, for the love of all things holy, go over onto YouTube, Mid-Atlantic Podcast. Go and subscribe if you do nothing else, because the algorithm gods then look at me quite favourably. And uh, give me a little bit more traffic. But if you're in the audience, un- unmute yourself and-, and ask a question to Piotr Curzon
4: about. I can't imagine they want to after everything I've said. And nodded off probably with my overly <laughs> out
3: That long-winded answer. Go for it, Francine.
2: Piotr, good morning. And what I want to ask you is a feeling that I am having, which is that even though we're supposed to be pulling back from globalism and being, I don't know, America first or whatever, changing our supply chain, I I see that there is completely a connection among all of the countries in the world. And if something happens in one country, sooner or later, it affects another country. The thigh bone's connected to the knee bone, the knee bone's connected to the shin bone, and hear the word of the Lord which, by the way, there's a great YouTube of that song. But I want to ask you, don't you think that in some ways what happened in Ukraine has gone around the world and had an impact on Gaza and the Houthis have gotten involved? And now, doesn't it seem like the entire world is upended? Yeah, thanks,
4: Dr. Francine. It's, It's nice to hear from you. I think that's a pretty... Tough question, but considering what we've all touched upon in the past bit of the episode, I'd say that in international relations and geopolitics, you get things called inflection points. And Ukraine is part of the biggest examples of an inflection point, but it's not the only one. COVID was a major inflection point. The withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan after 20 years and spending over a trillion dollars is an inflection point. They're symbolic of a general shift in western policy but more specifically US foreign policy which influences by inevitably everybody else because the US is still the most powerful country in the world to take your specific example with Ukraine yes that was absolutely a event that triggered other countries in the world be them directly implicated or not to change the way that they behave Poland is militarizing to levels we've not seen before to the point where they're more going to be more military speaking at least potentially powerful than Germany. We've got Turkey balancing its interests in the Middle East of, with what's happening in Gaza and Israel to also wanting to capitalize on its relationship with NATO. We have a Venezuelan potential issue in, in with Guyana and things. And why all these things? They're connected, but they're also disconnected in the sense of when you get one major event happening somewhere else, and that that distracts the predominant powerful countries, that leads smaller countries to begin to uh, exert their own influence. The Middle East is the perfect example of this. And whilst, again, we cannot fully say that the Gaza war happened because of Ukraine, it was certainly influenced. And would we have likely seen uh, Hamas do what they did on October 7th? Had the United States not been distracted by Ukraine, maybe they would have been more distracted by Taiwan. Maybe they would have been distracted by their pivot to Asia and it still happened, but the, the whole thing was in a long-term planning. I think that each individual event inevitably has repercussions for other ones, be them the ones that have existed prior and they're suddenly going in a different direction or creating new issues, for sure. There was another point to your question which I thought was quite interesting about the globalism thing because globalisation is a process that is not a singular event. It's a continuous process and has happened in what uh, some academics argue as ways. So, the first wave was during the mercantilism of the founding the New World. Second wave could be the Industrial Revolution and the subsequent trade. Third one could be during the run up to the First World War. And then the fourth wave of globalization is now with the proliferation of technology and so on and information age, as we know it's called. But globalization is definitely facing resistance. The whole anti globalization, the whole alter globalization, as some people call it, this idea that we want to not be purely some homogenistic, globe, homogenous, sorry, globe, that we all the same, we all trade. There's, there's a lot of emphasis on nationalism, increasingly ethno-nationalism in parts of the world. Yugoslavia did breed a new form of nationalism in, in, in the 90s. I think we're in a very interesting time where globalism is being challenged, undermined, re- rebuked. Uh, but at the same time, people in certain areas, and this is where I think the World Economic Forum, I think of people in elite positions of power, policymakers, they are still pushing ahead with it, this idea that we should all band together for things to do with AI, transnational climate change. People are not as on board with, say, ESG principles as a few years ago, yet it's still pushed in certain areas. So all the, all the globalism is facing a lot of challenges, and that's, I think, illish- reflected in the events that I've mentioned Ukraine and, and so on. But generally, each one affects the other. And globalism can have a certain acceleration, it can slow down if countries want to be more protectionist, if they want to become fully isolationist, as Trump seems to want to try and do. But it's not realistic. I'll end with this point, which is that simply it's impossible to imagine a world where a truly autarkic state exists or a closed economy exists. North Korea, Cuba, too close as examples, but they are still intertwined with their neighbors to a certain extent we will always be engaging with one another and therefore we'll always be indirectly affected by events that are happening around the world even if we don't think we are maybe gaza and israel will not affect the oceanic states as much but it's still going to affect supply chains because of what the houthis are doing so i don't know if that answers your question but i think we are in a truly unique period of disruption of unpredictability or volatility And I think a lot of what we discussed in the podcast earlier is emblematic of
3: where 2024 is going to be. What you gave us was an excellent nuanced answer and just an illustration as to how confusing the position is, whether you are. So I think it was a really excellent answer that you gave us there, Piotr, in terms of the complexity and the nuance to the various kind of currents and counter currents of the world. If you look at the war in, in Ukraine, as you said, what that has meant is that a country like Poland is rapidly militarizing. But that's part of a a wider global, sorry, regional security arrangement within NATO. And then if you look at what it's done for the countries in terms of energy security, now the Germans see that the, the position of taking so much of the energy from one country and a country which is not ideologically aligned with them, Russia, put them in strategically a weak position. So countries are now retreating to seeing key industries as being strategically important that they need more control over. So it led like food, farmers within, within the UK. Now that's seen as we were uh, incredibly weak in terms of global supply chains because of that, says so we're bolstering our food security, energy security. But then the response that countries have had vis-a-vis taking in Ukrainian refugees has been collective. So there has been a, a Western response to that. So it's an incredibly confusing and as you said we're at a pivotal point where at one on some levels countries are retreating to more isolationist and nationalistic policies for security reasons. But then in, in other ways, there has to be a kind of a, a group response. And I think the Ukraine war it is a fascinating one for that. Stephanie, Michelle, Jim, Gulrook, Bradford, Hania, Dave, Jenny. Lovely to see you, Jenny. Anybody unmute and give us a question.
2: I would do a hypothetical, Royfield, Go on, Jim. All right. I'm in the ATL and it is Dr. King Day down here. Apparently, Liz Cheney was speaking at Ebenezer Baptist Church along with Ben Stiller today. So the go figure that odd coupling hypothetical Dr. King's reaction to the state of the world today. Hmm, That's the question Uh, in the year 2024. Was Dr. Martin Luther King particularly engaged on
4: geopolitics?
2: I think yes. he was focused on social issues, wasn't he? No, he was. He actually was. He, he he did give many sermons about international policy.
4: I think that he would be proud of the South Africans doing what they're doing with the ICJ. People talk about Nelson Mandela and what he would think about it, given he was the fighter against apartheid. So I think Martin Luther King would think that, maybe. I think he would be absolutely... I don't I want to use the right word. More than disappointed, he would be very saddened by the state of domestic US politics, I think, and the emergence of sort of populism and and the sort of hostility of people on the fringes towards African-Americans or just minorities. I think he'd be upset with the treatment towards those on the border, even if it is a growing issue. I I think he'd be disappointed with the lack of compassion felt by many countries in the world. Even if the West is changing in its dominance, but yeah, I think he'd be i think he'd be pretty startled, but I think he'd want to also emphasize a message of hope because that's often what he would do. His speech is one of my favorite of all time, but that is quite a hard question to answer. I think he'd have some strong opinions about Africa and its current state and a desire for it to prosper more than it is, and for Western nations or other nations to stop interfering, I guess. But yeah, I think you just look at the world today with all its wars and destabilization and shit, and be like, why can't we have more unity against real world issues like, say, climate change or something? If he was ever someone who talked about that, I don't know, Royfield, what do you? That was a good
3: answer, Piotr. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. It really was. Thanks, so Royfield. <laughs> it, it, it was a good answer. When you read about Dr. Martin Luther King and what he believed economically. In an American lens in 2024, it's very left-wing. It's not even halfway liberal in in modern parlance. And being part of the political left in the 1960s, he would have sympathized with the Palestinian people, not that Israel doesn't have a right to exist. This is not a binary question at all. So in terms of geopolitics, I think what Piotr actually nailed it, that actually he would be very, he would applaud South Africa for taking um, Israel to the International Court of Justice over genocide because politically that's where he was um, aligned um, in in the 1960s. And also, South Africa potentially has moral right, potentially is the wrong word, has moral right behind it in terms of launching such a thing. Not only is it an African country, but a real potent representative of the global south, but also it, it's showing real moral leadership and it's something which he absolutely did. And we're recording this, of course, and, and Martin Luther King Day. So a great question, Jim. Now, the day if you have the opportunity to ask the last question, my friend, your t-shirt says hope. I hope your question is going to do you justice, sir.
2: Oh, I guess so. I I was just going to go back to the Ukraine situation. And I know that stalemate is like the status quo for the last year from just measuring the battle lines. What risks or potential changes would there be if some of the support from the West was able to, I guess, change the equation on air superiority? And it's becoming, to me, a little bit more clear that Crimea as an island is getting to be less reliable as a place to fall back
4: for russia i'll just give you my personal opinion actually without for once which is that my pers- my perspective at the beginning of this year last sorry at the beginning of last year was my position will shift not necessarily change but shift a little bit depending upon how well the ukrainian counteroffensive goes it didn't so i'm beginning to think about what is the propensity for the ukrainians to actually be able to make a change and make a difference that is obviously without incorporating the I factor of air support. Air forces, F-16s are supposed to be coming uh, or be near ready. Russia's still got air superiority and people are still curious as to why Russia hasn't leveraged that more. Maybe because they don't want to lose their jets or maybe because their jets are not as good. We saw how Russian uh, military performance <laughs> competency was in the first few uh, weeks of the war in 22. Not exactly. They ran out of tanks quite quickly and stuff and bring up ones from 1970s and shit. There is that component, but even if Ukraine begins to make some gains in the front, it's gonna be slow and it's gonna be costly and I I just don't know whether the West has that appetite, unequipped what's the word, unconditional support in them going ahead. Um it's it's a really tough one to call. Also because I'm conscious that people again they hear what people will say in these sorts of ways and they'll be like, Oh, so you don't support Ukraine? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that's what I want to happen. I'm just saying that's what could happen. And yeah, the Ukrainians are—they're a very potent force in their own right, but they are going up against a another force which is just good at strategical resilience, patience, and holding out. And Putin is holding out. It's not only about the battlefield, it's about the political dynamics. If if Putin can hold out for something, Donald Trump keeps saying, I'll end this war tomorrow or within 48 hours. So that's a real fear for the Ukrainians and a real reassurance or hope for the Russians. So it's tough. Crimea is definitely a problem growing for the Russians. The Ukrainians are making more decent strikes against maritime assets. They are making more confident excursions into Russian naval, Russian maritime zones, and also into Russia itself. Remember those two drones that struck the Kremlin in May, if that was the Ukrainians? So I, I definitely think that Crimea is not over with. People say, oh, Ukraine should just give up. Not necessarily, but can't they can't get a foothold on mainland Ukraine, so I don't really see why they would then begin deviating some of or separating some of their forces and putting it into Crimea to take back the island. Doesn't add much to the overall gains, ultimately, i, I at least from my crude military understanding. Yeah, I, I still don't see things changing massively quickly. The coming spring months and then the summer, then we might see some shifts again, but we didn't see in last year, so why would we suddenly see them this year? unless that's when the Ukrainians implement the F-16s, then you might, then it might be different. But that's really hard to forecast. I don't know if that gives you a satisfactory response.
3: You, you made a really good point, yes. Piotr, which is Putin is, has the ability to see out the West more patient. He can lose more resources and just keep going. And this is something that was the Chinese always say about the West. The, the vagaries of our democratic system are such that we somewhat flip-flop and uh, the Russians and the Chinese are much more sighted in this regard. And, and to your point, you're incredibly correct that if Trump wins the presidency, that stops all military support for Ukraine overnight. Like they, they, There is no more. So if the Russians can just see out this year and have more than just the capability of doing that, potentially... It takes it takes the knees from underneath the the Ukrainians in terms of current levels of Western support. But with, and after saying that, just two days ago, Rishi Sunak has pledged two point three billion pounds to, to help Ukraine. But still, <laughs> right, the Americans are by far the largest supporter of Zelensky and the Ukrainians. On that note, everybody, I'm going to thank our friend Piotr Curzon for being with us here on Mid Atlantic, Piota. Tell us all about your wondrous YouTube channel, your podcasting works and what you've got in the bag uh, for people coming up soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Royfield. It's been a, a
4: real pleasure and I'm glad to have finally joined you on the Mid-Atlantic podcast, both video and audio format and a big fan of the work, although we've had, I, I think I've made a few comments here and there in the past on other episodes and I've loved the community on here so people, if you haven't joined Royfield when he has these guests on zoom it's a nice interactive style for myself i yeah i run the the global gambit podcast both in spotify and apple formats but on youtube well, youtube is increasingly my big passion and uh, a lot of things i don't put on the audio podcast i do put on the channel we've had guests from brigadier general robert Spaulding to francis Fukuyama to peter foster of the financial times and i'm working on some other exciting things this year i'm going to start posting on my own content so you can just find it by Googling my name or The Global Gambit on YouTube. And yeah, love to have you as part of the community and look forward to
3: collabing with you in the future, Royfield. Listen, we're going to do that. 2024, sir, is our year to collab. Do not worry. If you want to can communicate with me, send me an email at royfield at gmail.com. I'll tell you what you can do when you send me an email. Apart from just berating me, you can also say, hey, why don't you follow uh, this topic or do a show on that topic? to that note somebody did email me just last week and say why don't you do a show on Canadian domestic politics Are we're going to do that on this Thursday well, we don't put up all of our shows actually on YouTube But what we do is the in-form long-deck interviews we put those up on YouTube so if you're listening to the podcast please go over there please go and subscribe give them a watch tell your brother tell your mother tell your sister that Mid-Atlantic is on the YouTube. love to see you over there And on that note, from Piotr Curzon and myself, it's goodbye, Arabidurchi, and ciao. And we'll see you all for another rip-roaring, barnstorming episode of Mid-Atlantic, where we'll look at either US, UK, or maybe geopolitics in the round. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye.